Luke chapter 22 from verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you, come, that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you didn't lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance, but when they'd kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together... Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the cock crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. 
They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You are right in saying I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it all from his own lips. Good morning, everyone. Good to have you all here this morning again. And if you're visiting us, I'm not sure if I see any visitors, but if you are, good to have you. Oh, there's one. Welcome. We are working our way through Luke, and we are really getting to the heart of our faith, really. Oh, welcome back to those two of you from England. Uh, it's good to see you as well. Um, so we have already prayed. You can open your Bible to Luke, uh, the passage that was read to us, um, and on your outline, you can follow. So let's start there. It starts out with the writings on the wall. I take it you know what that means. It's a kind of a phrase that uh, has come about actually from the book of Daniel. It's amazing how the Bible has an influence on culture. Um, people are quoting the Bible uh, without them actually knowing it. Uh, but it really means that the, something is going to happen. It's inevitable that something is about to happen. That's really what it means. It also means that the truth is, is apparent. It's for everybody to see it. It also has a little bit of a dark side, isn't it? It's a bit of an exposure thing. If you really want to play with this, if you want to go and read it, uh, it's actually Aramaic uh, that they were speaking, and they were saying, which uh, really means uh, you don't know what it means. So that's why it was on the wall. But it actually has about nine different ways of understanding it, which was a little bit confusing. But it got everybody excited. And it was basically saying is that you were numbered, and you were weighed, and you were found wanting, and so you will be divided. So it's a very interesting play on words that you find there. And I take it that that's really where we are now in Luke's gospel. We are coming to the inevitable that we've been knowing for quite a while. Things are really reaching its final fulfillment and there is no doubt about what is really going on. It is also, as we get closer and closer and closer to Jesus' death, he's been preparing this from, if you can remember, in Luke chapter 9. Jesus has said, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, and I'm on my way to my death. That's what I'm preparing for. And he's walking right through Galilee all the way to Jerusalem. And he's saying, the writing's been on the wall for a long time, but now it's really becoming quite clear that this is inevitable. Especially since he's come into Jerusalem and the fight has been escalating and the people were looking for reasons and ways of actually coming to kill Jesus. The truth is very apparent. The truth that Jesus says, I must die, comes in more clear. But the question is, why must he die? That truth, funny enough, also gets more clarified as we move and come closer to the final death of Jesus Christ. So in this week and next week, we're going to have part one and part two. We're going to have Jesus versus man's hour and the power of darkness. So if you, in your Bible... Have a look for, with me at uh, verse 53 of Luke chapter 22. 
especially the last verse. It says, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. The wording is slightly different. He's saying, and this is yours, the hour and the power of darkness. The hour of Jesus is coming closer. And in that hour, the funny thing that you are going to see is you're going to see people's darkness coming out more. That's quite a mouthful, isn't it? As I come closer to my death, what's going to happen is that every human's darkness is going to come out more clearly. That is what Jesus is saying. Every human being is under the power of darkness. That's an incredible statement that Jesus is making. And Luke, I take it, has kind of set up his material for us to try and help us to see what is going on here. And so I've quoted it there, Jesus and the 50 Shades of Darkness. And I'm sure if you watch movies, you would know where I got that title from. In this passage by itself, it's structured around Judas, the leaders, Peter, the guards, and the Sanhedrin. And the focus, funny enough, falls on Peter. Judas, one of the twelve, and we know that he's in the dark because we've already read earlier that Satan entered into him so that he may go and hand over Jesus to the leaders. So, in one sense, we kind of, I think it's easy to, well, okay, well, that's what happened to him. Pretty bad and pretty sad. But we understand that Judas is dark, isn't it? You with me? I mean, it's sad, but he's dark. Darkness reigns in him. Darkness has forced him to deny the Lord Jesus Christ and to hand him over. We've also seen, actually for quite a while, that the chief priests and the officers and the elders, they have been set in getting rid of Jesus. Their darkness has also been quite clear, palpable. So everybody can see that. They keep on saying, how can we catch him out? How can we upset him? How can we go? And their darkness has been showing all along. Then when you skip over Peter, we'll come back to Peter. I want to zoom in on him. You have the guards, and they are in power, and they are putting Jesus in the dark and hitting him and having a lot of fun, saying, hey, now you're in the dark, hey? Now you're under our control. So who hit you? Great fun and joy that they are having. The power of being in control of another person's life, and they are enjoying themselves and laughing and giggling and insulting him. And then we have, in verses 66 to the end, we have the first bit of daybreak, because this entire passage happens at night. All right, so if you go back, just flip back, verse 20, 39, Jesus uh, went out as usual to the Mount of Olives as his disciples followed him. That happens at night. So if you flip further back into chapter 21, verse 37, it says, Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And so this is all happening in the night. It's in the dark. And Jesus, it's not only, only dark outside. The real reality is that it's dark inside. Inside people. We see the darkness in Judas. We see the darkness in the priests and the, uh, and the, and the officers. We see it in the uh, temple guard. We see it in the Sanhedrin. 
They say, tell us, are you the Christ? And Jesus says, listen here, there's actually no point in telling you because when I tell you you don't believe me and when I ask you questions to lead you to that conclusion, you will not answer me. And he's asked them a couple of times questions. What about this? What about this? And they will refuse to answer him. They're in the dark, but for the first time there's a little daybreak. But they've already made up their mind. And Jesus says, I know that you don't care about the truth. Darkness has overwhelmed you. And again, we can kind of, I don't know, we're kind of used to it, isn't it? I mean, the, the, the Pharisees and the leaders, and those are the baddies in the Gospels, aren't they? I mean, Judas is a bit of a surprise. But the real surprise is Peter. Now, just think about this. Why would Christianity take its leader, the one that Jesus said on your testimony, little pebble, I will build my church. Why on earth would Christianity make sure that the failure of its leader is recorded in all the Gospels? Interesting question. Jesus has been telling us that I must die. Why must Jesus die? And so that's what you're going to see a little bit of this morning. I just want to draw your attention to it. The unbelievable reality that Christianity is not scared to go where there is darkness. It comes to deal with human darkness. That's what it comes to deal with. Most of you have read Lord of the Flies, is that right? Who has not read Lord of the Flies? Uneducated. Lord of the Flies was written in this, during the Second World War, actually just after that, to remind us of something very interesting. It was to remind mankind, actually, of the evil that is within mankind. It's a story about the boys going onto this island, and as they live there, they become increasingly evil. And so, I just want to read to you what, uh, if I can find it quickly on all my notes, what William Golding said about his own book. He said, I wrote this to make sure that no one who looks at the Second World War will ever doubt the reality that man's heart produces evil as bees produces honey. For if you've seen that, and you deny that, you have, you are blind and you hit your head in the sand. Christianity is not afraid to tackle the reality of darkness where it reigns. And it actually uses Peter to help us to understand this. Why this is so important. That's why I want us to have a quick focus on Peter this morning. And then we will look and compare and contrast him to Jesus. Because in each one of these sections, Jesus stands out. And we're not going to be able to look at all of them. Judas comes and he hides behind a kiss. And Jesus sees right through it. The guys come 
attack him at night outside the temple when they could have actually caught him in the temple. And Jesus points that out. Jesus shows every single point that he is not only in control, but he actually cares to bring about the truth, to bring about light in darkness. And so let's have a quick squiz. So we really want to focus on verses 54 to verses 62 this morning, and we're just going to work through that. Let's have a look at the nature of Peter's failure. Now again, you need to know your Bible a little bit, yeah? Because this failure of Peter is a failure of loyalty. Can you remember what Peter said just a chapter, a couple of verses before, and Jesus said, you are going to deny me three times, Peter, and Peter said, never. I will gladly suffer and die with you. I'll go to jail with you. I will not fail you. Starts out pretty good, isn't it? Verse 54. uh, Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. Looks good, isn't it? And when some had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with him. It looks good, isn't it? He's associating. He's there. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. The hour of temptation has come. Peter says, woman, I don't know him. I will die with you, Jesus. I don't know him. A failure of loyalty. There's also a failure of courage, isn't it? This is a slave girl. I mean, in the pecking order of society, that was pretty low. Pretty nobody. Pretty unimportant person. And Peter doesn't have the courage to tell her, yes, I do know him. A failure of courage. It gets worse. It is an emphatic failure. Three times he denies it. I don't know him. I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know. Three times. Not once. Three times. But makes it worse, it's a considered failure. Did you know that? Did you know the time gaps between? So you ask him a little bit later, you ask him again, and an hour later, he was asked again. He, he, he has some time to think about what he has said. A considered failure. The heart of it is that it's a spiritual failure. You are the Christ of God. Now, I don't know. I don't know you, God. I don't know who you are. I don't want to be associated with you. I want to save myself. Here's Peter. And obviously, it is a moral failure. He's lying. He does know him. He's been with him for three years. 
He walked with him. He listened to him. He was rebuked by him. Jesus exposed all sorts of things. They don't know who he is. Is it sound familiar? Have you ever, ever been disloyal? Have you ever failed to have the courage to do the good and the truth that you know? Do you know this experience? Is this foreign to you? Is this from another world? It's, a, it's, another, it's an alien being that has been described here. Have you actually considered something and lied about it? Do you know what it is to be in Peter's shoes? Have you had any moral failures? The hour of trial is upon you, Peter. That's the context. So what should you do, Peter? You should pray so that you will not succumb to the hour of temptation. What does Peter do? He sleeps. Overwhelmed, tells us, by sorrow. You were told you're going to deny me. I will not, and I did. You were told to prepare yourself for that trial, and you failed knowingly to do it. You deliberately thought it through, and again and again and again, you have pushed aside the truth to save your own skin, Peter. The context makes it just worse. This is the leader of the church. This is the guy that said, you are the Christ. Now, there's good news in this, isn't it? Can you see it? The good news is, is that Jesus does not build his church on the perfect, but on failures. But you need to be exposed for who you really are in order to be part of it. You need to see it. You need to own it. You need to come out into the light. You need to be open about it. For Jesus must die. Because he must die because sin is real. And this is real. This is real, real failure. You can't excuse it. You can't talk it away. You can't try and do something else to make up for it. It sits there. Poof. Like a block, unmovable. Now, if you look at him, you look at Jesus on the other side. And Jesus saying, I have come to die. So just go back quickly to the previous section. Verse 37 of chapter 22. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. This death of mine was purposed before and written about before in God's word. So when God does that, he is dealing with the reality of our problem and he has been knowing the reality of our problem for a very, very long time. This is not caught Jesus of God. 
My death is a purposed death. It has a very clear purpose. Everything must be fulfilled in me that is written about me. It's very deliberate, isn't it? I mean, Jesus has been deliberately going to his death. He's making sure that he's going. So now we come to this section where we see that Jesus' death is also a willing death. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, verse 42, yet not my will, but yours be done. I think it's Luther that said that this man was the man that feared death the most. For he understood the fullness of what is at stake, and yet he did it willingly for me and you. Most of us really don't want to talk about death, and we hope that it happens to somebody else. And if it happens to us, okay, well, there's nothing you can do about it. This man knew exactly what is it about. And therefore, he says, I really don't, if there's another way that I could save mankind, then let's do it. But if there's no other way, then I'm willing to do it. Jesus prays, and he can stand in the hour of temptation. The disciples can't pray, and they can't stand in the hour of temptation. But it's important to note that this is not just a willing death. This is a wrath-removing death. Verse 42, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. There's two cups in the Old Testament, the cup of blessing and joy and the cup of suffering and wrath. Jesus is saying, in order to have the cup of blessing, we've just had him institute a new covenant in the cup. The cup of the wrath of God must be drank until the dregs at the bottom of the cup. Now, we don't know about dregs because we have filtered all our wine. Thanks to Butti and the guys who know how to make wine. Those days, the wine were full of rubbish. And so you drank only half the cup because at the bottom of the cup was all the gung. Jesus says, I must drink the fullness of the cup of the wrath of God until it is finished. I've got to drink the dregs at the bottom of it. The stuff that you kind of have to chew to get down. Saying, this is a wrath-removing death. God's wrath at man's failure must be dealt with. Man's inexcusable failure, a la Peter, must be dealt with. It must be removed in order for us to have the cup of joy. It's a very isolated death, isn't it? I mean, Jesus is all by himself. Everybody's abandoning him. One of his 12 gives him over, and his closest and his most important man turns on him and denies him. He's all by himself. He's isolated. He's alone. He's unique. There's no one like him. That's the point, isn't it? And it is an agonizing death. He was sweating blood, which apparently, biologically, medically is possible. If you're under enough stress, you can actually sweat blood. This is serious stress. 
Jesus says, I have come because every single one is in need of this death of mine for them. That's why I've come. The darkness is not only out there, the darkness is in here. We love to talk about what is wrong, isn't it? Do you love talking about what's wrong? Could I get you quickly to talk about what's wrong with the country? Wrong with the government? Wrong with the leaders? Wrong with your neighbors? Wrong with your dog or cat? To talk about what is wrong is not very difficult, and it's not wrong to talk about what is wrong. But can you talk about the wrong inside of you? Can you own up? Look at what Peter does. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word that the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he wept went outside and wept bitterly. Are you distraught about what you find inside of you? As much as you are distraught with what you see outside of you and other people. Christianity says you can come out into the light. Jesus can see you. He knows exactly what's going on. And he wants to save you. That's why he's come. I mean, that's just bizarre, isn't it? He knows. You can fool others, and you may even get it right to fool yourself. But there is no way you'll fool him. And yet he's come willingly, deliberately, to remove the shame and the denial and the lies that you believe about yourself so that you may have life. That's why he's come. There is no other religion that actually marvels at this reality. Jesus, you get me. You know why I often can't sleep at night. You know what I'm thinking while I'm talking to other people. You know how I write them off. You know how disloyal I am. You know how little courage I have. You know all the excuses I make. You know my lack of prayer that I will stand in the hour of temptation. <laughs> you know everything about me. You see, Jesus has come to come and deal with that darkness. If you can come to him... And say, Jesus, yeah, I have a problem. And it's a sad problem. And it's a problem too powerful for me. You are not very far from the kingdom of God. But if you can't, you are very, very, very far from the kingdom of God. You are exceptionally far from the kingdom of God. This passage is designed to help us to understand why Jesus must die. The wonderful thing is, as we already know, is that Peter was restored. 
So there's the wonderful reality that Christ's death does bring about the forgiveness of sins. And you can ask him. Today, you can ask him. If you have asked him, ask him again. He says, I've come to save those who knows what it is like to wrestle and to lose to the darkness inside of them. I've come to save. Have you? Have a chat with him? Have you actually sat down and said, Lord Jesus, <laughs> you know me. And for all the stuff and promises and, that I've made in my life, they are worth absolutely nothing. I've done some good things. I have, and I'm sure you too. But in my heart, there's written across it, failed. And there's only one way, and that is that Jesus must die. And he has come to do that deliberately and willingly. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to you, and we ask that you will search us, and that you will know our anxious thoughts and that you will see where all the darkness is inside us and that because of your son that you will forgive us that you will restore us and that you will lead us in the way everlasting we thank you that we can go to a world that is absolutely terrified of admitting the darkness that they find inside them. Thank you that we have a Savior that knows the deepest, darkest dregs of our hearts. And he has come to expose it, to die for it, to forgive it, and to give us life. So Lord, as we taste the glory of your goodness, we pray that we may pray that we may keep on standing and pray that we may take this message to whoever we know, work with, and bump into. Give us a heart, give us the humility Give us the joy, give us the wisdom to bring about an understanding of the glory of Christ in the face of the darkness that we find within mankind. So thank you for this. Thank you for reminding us of what we know. Thank you for deepening our understanding of the magnitude of the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can come into the light, humble, weeping, sorrowful, but hopeful and thankful because of Christ. So Lord, write your words on the walls of our hearts. We pray this in your name. Amen.